men. Um, I want to share some things with you tonight. Um, I, I really don't have a message per se, uh, so I, I don't know what we're going to call this. Um, but uh, I just want to share some things out of my heart tonight. There are, it seems that uh, um, when it comes to the subject of healing, most people, nine, nine times out of ten, and I'm talking about the general population. This may not be true of you sitting here, and I hope it's not, to be honest with you. But uh, where, where it comes to the church world at large, uh, in my experience, nine times out of ten, people are looking for somebody with power. That must be true because people that, uh, that have healing ministries and, and miracle ministries particularly pack the houses out wherever they go, whether it's convention centers or whatever. And so the reason for that, I, I can only see two reasons that people would, would attend, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with attending services or conventions like that, but there's only one of two reasons that I can think of why people would want to do that. Either, number one, they're going to see the show, or which is a lot of folks uh, at least in my experience or number two they're looking for somebody that they perceive has something they don't have in other words power to bring my healing to me or whatever the case is power to, to do the works of God uh, that, that the ordinary person me included wouldn't have what other reasons would there be for that reason and, and it's, it's uh, again, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I'm not uh, finding fault with anything. It's a natural tendency. We all want to know the secret of the other guy's power. Everybody's interested in that. Books are written about that. Uh, I, I know that, that even on a much smaller scale than what we would think of as someone with great power, I know over the years I've had uh, um, uh, over, well, probably close to around 200 times I've had uh, Bible school students or somebody that's uh, planning to, to start a church call me and, and ask me how do you start a church because it's, it's a common thing for people to, to have something on their heart but not really have the plan they have to research and find out the, the method for how do you do it well I know that that's a, a, a Bible school assignment in, uh, in many cases and, uh, and so that's, uh, that's been the majority, not, not all of the people that have called to ask me, but, uh, but that's been the majority. And, uh, and, and that went on for several years until they found out that I didn't give any answers. Because to be real honest with you, I don't know how to start a church. I know what we did, but what we did and, and the reason why we did what we did is because we knew God had sent us to a specific place to do a specific work and we looked to the leading of the Lord to do whatever we did. Some things we did were right and some things we did were mistakes and we found out, okay, don't do that and make this adjustment and, and go forward. It wasn't like God told us every step of the way what to do. You understand what I'm saying? But I have the same tendency as everybody else. I want to know the secret to everybody's power. I read after people like Wigglesworth and John Lake and, and Amy Semple McPherson, who was used in the power of God in a great way. And I want to know what these, uh, I want to know what the secret of their power was. Because it's obvious not everybody's doing the stuff they did. I mean, let's just face it. Whether it belongs to everybody or not, not everybody's doing it. Now, I think it has to do with a, a number of things. It has to do with a different call that's upon people's lives and, and so forth. But still, the Bible makes statements about the power of God that's available to us that belongs to everybody. So I want to know too, don't you? Well, I've been blessed to, uh, to have come across um, ministers. And in, in each case, they've been older ministers who were young men when some of the men that I admire, Wigglesworth, Lake, and, and uh, 
uh, Amy Simple McPherson and some others, uh, when they were older and, and at the end of their ministries were young men and women that were acquainted with them personally. Well, uh, a couple of those people, like, for example, Dr. Duffield, John, uh, Dr. Guy P. Duffield. I, you, some of you may have heard Brother Hagen talk about, use his name. He ha- used to hold meetings for Brother Duffield. Well, Dr. Duffield was, uh, uh, I believe, the first pastor that took over at Angeles Temple in Los Angeles uh, after Amy Simple McPherson died. So he's well acquainted with her, one of the, the uh, originators of the Foursquare denomination and, and so forth. And, and so I had a chance to be around him some right at the end of his life uh, for the last, um, well, not quite two years, I guess, but uh, for the last year and a half or so of his life, had a chance to spend some time alone with him. He, he called me out of the blue and, and uh, well, didn't call me. He came to the church, and then after that he contacted me and said he wanted to go to lunch with me. He wanted to get to know me. Well, I thought, dear Lord, thank you, Father, you know. So I had some real, real interesting talks with him, and I'd get him talking about Amy Supple McPherson. I'd get him talking about the things that he saw, and he'd tell me about the miracles that he saw and, and uh, uh, people's legs growing out right in front of everybody and, and uh, uh, hands that were missing just materializing in front of everybody. Uh, these were the days, uh, well, most of these were the days before television, so it wasn't, uh, wasn't videotaped or anything like that. Um, well, I, I won't get into that. But anyway, uh, and so he would tell me, share with me story after story after story, and I'd ask him every time, every time I'd get him to talk about it, I'd ask him, what was the secret to her power? And he would say things, and, and this is a real common thing. Well, they just walked with the Lord and, and, uh, and so forth. Well, I've read after certain people. As a matter of fact, there's another gentleman that I became acquainted with right at the end of his life that was um, uh, an acquaintance with uh, Smith Wigglesworth. His name was George Stormont. And uh, we, if, you, if you go back a long ways with us in the church, we had him here preaching, not in this building, but in uh, one of our earlier buildings uh, a couple of different times. Sweetest old fellow you ever saw in your life. Well, he was a real young man when Wigglesworth was an old man. As a matter of fact, it was his church that Wigglesworth died in at a funeral service. Went home to be with the Lord. And so I would pick his brain. Man, I wore that old fellow out. Bless his heart. I'd get together with him and I'd want to know everything. And I'd want to know that I've read the stories. I've read the books. And, and I want to know everything that, that, that you haven't told people about it. And, and, uh, and that type of stuff. And as a matter of fact, he was interviewed by a, um, uh, a publishing house about Wigglesworth and they, uh, the, the result of that interview they published and titled the Se- Wigglesworth The Secret of His Power it's a book still in print today well I read that thing and, and it talked about his consecration to the Lord and all that kind of stuff and I thought well I'm consecrated to the Lord it's got to be more than that and so I would hound him you know just tell me what it is tell me what it is it's got to be something think you know even if you don't know let me Pick your brain and let's figure it out together. And so I got some answers. The only one of the, uh, of the individuals that I've really followed after greatly, which is John Lake, that I haven't had a chance to spend, spend time, extended time with, uh, was with somebody that, uh, that, that knew him. As a matter of fact, his son-in-law came to Raymond when I was in school there. Wilford Wright was his name, and he's written some books. Uh, the same publishing house uh, interviewed him and published some of his materials about uh, John Lake. And uh, he was uh, Lake's son-in-law. His wife, Gertrude, was still alive the first time he came to Ramah. And um, uh, they were uh, family members. And so he, he knew Lake intimately. 
And I didn't have much time to, to spend with him. Uh, the only time I had to spend with him was, uh, was transporting him around from one place to another and that kind of stuff when he came to visit uh, Ramah. But, of course, he wanted to spend his time with Brother Hagen and not me. So, uh, you know, some people, there's just no accounting for taste. But uh, nevertheless, I, I didn't have a chance to spend much time with him, but I did ask him a couple of questions. And he gave me just a generic answer about his consecration to the Lord. And I'd read all that stuff in the books. And so I, I never really found out what I wanted to find out about Lake. Although he did tell me this, he said there was something about Lake. He said there was a spiritual dominion, a spiritual air that he carried that made you aware of the dominion that he had over sickness and disease. He said you could just feel it on him. Well, okay, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a special anointing. I don't know if that's a special call of God upon somebody's life. Without having the opportunity to ask somebody that really knows, how would you figure that out? But Amy Simple McPherson, when I talked to Dr. Duffield about him or her, he said something, and he, he was, you know, I guess people that, that are known for knowing famous people, they're used to having questions asked and stuff like that. But I wanted to go back past the surface stuff. I wanted to go past the, 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 the everyday stuff you tell people. I want to know the real deal. There's got to be something more than, than stuff that people normally say. And so he said this. I, I, I badgered the guy, bless his heart, and uh, he leaned back in his chair. We were at lunch. had been at lunch for a couple of hours. He leaned back in his chair and he said, well, you know, now that you think about it, now that you, you, you know, asked me about it and got me to thinking, there was something about her that was unusual. It was unlike anybody I've ever been around. I says, okay, now we're zeroing in. What is it? He said, she was in love with Jesus. And he said, everything she said and everything she did, she could make you fall in love with Jesus more than anybody I've ever known. She, he said, she wasn't the best preacher I knew. She certainly wasn't the best teacher I knew. She wasn't the most anointed minister. But boy, she could make you fall in love with Jesus. Well, I thought, all right, that is something. Uh, That helps me a little bit. Talking about relationship. But let me share something with you that Brother Stormont did. Something that I weaseled out of that old guy without him even knowing it. He said this one time. He went through the whole thing, the same stuff that it was written in the book that was published, you know, under his name and, and, and that kind of stuff. But he said this. He said... You know, come to think of it, I remember one time that we were sitting there. And Brother Wigglesworth, he called him Smith. He said, Brother Smith said this. He said, I never was used of God any until I understood one simple truth. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Is that all right? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. It's the simplest thing. It's so simple you're going to say, really? You set this up like that? For this? In other words, I'm not going to tell you something you don't know. I'm going to tell you something that you think you know. But if you really see it, it'll make a difference. There's something that the Lord's been doing with me here lately, and I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, I think it's the answer to some prayers that I've been praying because I've been praying differently about some things than I ever have before. I caught myself praying in other, uh, while I was praying in other tongues, I caught myself praying some things out in English that kind of surprised me when I started saying them and uh, kind of embarrassed me because I never would have thought to pray these things on my own. I never would have uttered the words, you know, and... Uh, I'm sure the devil would have talked me out of it by asking me the question, who do you think you are type stuff. But I caught myself praying some things in English while I was speaking in other tongues. And I knew that I was uh, interpreting some things that I was praying in other tongues. 
And uh, so I, it, it came out of my mouth several times before it really got my attention. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm talking in English. What am I saying? So I, I had to get back over in spirit, you know, thinking like that will kind of drop you out of where you were. So I got back over in spirit, praying in other tongues, and it came again. And ever since then, I caught a hold of it with my mind. From that time, I caught a hold of it with my mind. And I started praying these things out in English. And I'm getting some, some uh, results. Um, God's using me in some different ways and showing me some different things that, um, well, it's certainly things that I've never seen before or things that I've never seen in this way. Some of it is information that I've, I have been aware of for a long time. But, uh, but even reading stuff, uh, well, I was reading some, some notes that were, oh, gee, um, 30 years old, something like that, that I took in Brother Hagin's meeting. And I read those notes the other day, and man, something exploded on the inside of me. And I thought, why in the world did I see that when I wrote it down? And so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. God's showing me some things, not with new information, but revealing old, what I thought was old information to me. So it's not a matter of what you heard before. It's not a matter of what you think you know. It's a matter of what your eyes, your spiritual eyes really see. Amen. Mark chapter 11. Jesus has cursed the fig tree and the next day the disciples are coming by and Peter draws it to, to their attention. Jesus answering verse 22 and said unto them, have faith in God. Different translations will relate this in different ways. I like several different ones. One says have, have the faith of God. One translation, uh, literally the original rendering uh, in the Greek, the words mean reckon on God's faithfulness. But he said, have faith in God or have the faith of God for verily I say unto you. In other words, here's what faith in God looks like. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Brother um, Stormont said, I remember one time I was sitting together with Brother Smith. And he got this faraway look on his eye, and he said I could tell he was in the spirit. He said he would do that sometimes. He said sometimes he'd be, he'd be talking to you, but he's praying under his breath, you know, all the time while you're having a conversation. You talk while he's praying in tongues under his breath type thing. And he said you could see it in his eyes sometimes. It was almost like you'd look at him and wonder, are you seeing Jesus right now? And he said he got that look in his eye, and he said, I realized whenever he spoke in, under those circumstances, really pay attention to what he was saying. I had some experiences like that with Brother Hagin. Uh, Beth and I have, have uh, uh, been around Brother Hagin, and, and, and honest to goodness, the best times I ever spent with Brother Hagin were not in meetings. They were after the meetings were over, and he was sitting around talking to us, the, the crew and the, the group that helped, because the Spirit of God would come on him at times like that, and he'd share things that he wouldn't share publicly. And man, it was, uh, you remember the story about after Jesus was raised from the dead, he saw the two guys walking uh, where were they on the road to Emmaus or something like that? And he began to talk to them. When they finally came to town and Jesus sat down to eat with them, then he disappeared and they realized it was Jesus. And then they got to talking about it and they said, man, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked to us? Well, that's how it was with, with uh, Brother Hagin. He'd get in those times where the Spirit of God had come on him and he'd just start sharing things out of his heart. Not sermons, not preaching, but just sharing things out of his heart. And man, you're my spirit would just burn on the inside of me while he was talking to me. It was like those words. I'll never forget those words. I could recite the things that he said word for word. It was like they just burned on the inside. Well, that's, uh, I guess it was a similar situation that Brother Stormer was talking about with Smith Wigglesworth. 
He said, I knew when he got that look on his face to always pay attention. He said, uh, Brother Wigglesworth spoke. He said, we were having a conversation, but I realized whatever he was going to tell me had nothing to do with the conversation. And he said, let me uh, share the word with you. So he got out his little testament and read Mark chapter 11, verse 22, 23, and 24. And then he said this. And Brother Stormont said, I'll never forget it. He said, I haven't thought about it in a long time. But he said, I'll never forget it. He said, Brother Wigglesworth said, verse 23 clearly identifies that God wants you to move mountains. Now let me read verse 23 again. Jesus has just said, have faith in God. He's going to explain what faith in God is like. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Why would Jesus go from explaining how he cursed a fig tree and it died to talking about moving a mountain? What does the mountain represent? Well, the mountain represents a problem, whatever problem is facing you, whatever hindrance you come upon in life. I mean, what else could it be? But why would he talk about mountain? Why wouldn't he say whatever problem you encounter? Why would he talk about a mountain? Well, everybody agrees, and the, the geography supports it, that the place that Jesus said this thing between, Jesus, between Bethany and Jerusalem, uh, there's a mountain there, a mountain as is considered to be a mountain in Israel and that part of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is obviously saying, whosoever shall say to this mountain, he's pointing to a mountain. Now, certainly, as we said, the mountain has to represent problems, has to represent obstacles or hindrances or whatever. But folks, a mountain is an immovable object. A mountain is something that's too big to even consider moving. Nobody moves mountains. Even if they're going to create roads, they'll either tunnel through them or go around them. Nobody moves mountains. Nobody blows up mountains. They may blow up the top of a mountain to make a road, make it flat for a road to go through or to make a tunnel or whatever. But nobody blows up a mountain. Even with all the explosive power that we can get as far as construction or whatever is concerned, nobody blows up a mountain to move it. Jesus is using an example that is supposed to be understood by us and was understood by Brother Willsworth to be an impossible situation. God wants you to move the impossible in your life. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, as Brother Stormont said, Brother Smith said, until he learned that, until he saw that, as he was sharing, he read this and said what I just said to you. God wants you to move mountains. And then he said this. He concluded, and there were other things that he said, things that I'm sure Brother Stormont didn't even remember to tell me about. But uh, he concluded it, Brother Stormer said, and he concluded what he was talking about. Talked to him for a few minutes about it. He said, he concluded it by saying, I was never able to be used by God until I saw that. What do you see? I'm not asking, can you quote the scripture? I would hope that you can. But what do you see? Do you see impossible situations that you encounter as being movable? Or do you use faith as a, as a means to, uh, uh, to get by? God expects you to move mountains. God wants you to move mountains. Faith was designed to move mountains. 
In other words, faith was designed to do the impossible. Not do the hard things. Not bring the things that Jesus purchased for you. Faith was designed to do the impossible. Got anything impossible around you? That's exactly what faith was designed to do. And notice Jesus didn't put any restrictions on it. He said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. That's the only restriction he makes. That's the only qualification or condition he puts on it. He said, and shall not doubt in his heart. Now, we've talked about this a number of times. I hope you know the definition of this already. But in case you don't, let me just give it to you. Doubt in the heart is to speak contrary to your spirit. The heart is the spirit. To speak contrary to your spirit, or we'll say it this way, to speak according to your five physical senses. To speak according to what you see and feel and hear. Instead of what the Bible says or what faith you've already exercised concerning that mountain. See, if faith is of the heart, and it is, then that means faith is of the spirit. Faith is of the unseen part of mankind's realm. Faith is of the spirit realm. So faith is speaking according to what you can't see. Doubt in the heart would be speaking according to what you see the circumstances to be. So very simply, he says, if you'll speak to the mountain and command it to be cast into the sea and don't change what you say about it. And don't change what you say about it. But instead, believe, which takes some understanding of how faith works. Believe that the things that you say will come to pass. Well, if they will come to pass, that means they haven't come to pass when you said them. That means there's a process. When you speak to something unseen or speak words that are from the Spirit, your Spirit or the Spirit of God, when you speak words concerning the impossible circumstances of your life, they are not yet done. But your faith brings them into reality. And that's what you're supposed to believe. You're supposed to believe that your faith will make them real in a visible sense. They're real in a spiritual sense. It's already done by faith. It's already done in the spirit realm. It's already done in the invisible realm. But we don't need things done in the invisible realm. God's got that under control. We need things changed in the invisible realm, don't we? I certainly do. That's where my impossible problems are. They're in the realm of the material Well, what are we supposed to believe? We're supposed to believe that what we say will or shall come to pass. Well, what will happen if we speak to the mountain and don't change what we say and believe that what we say will come to pass? What you say will come to pass. Notice he didn't say what you say might come to pass. Notice he doesn't say, you know, now whosoever shall say to this mountain, he's got a good chance of getting results. I think that's the way we approach faith too many times. We don't think of faith as the impossible, that which changes the impossible. We think of faith as that which gets us by or helps us to escape the problem or whatever. God doesn't want you to escape the problem. He wants you to move impossible circumstances. That's what faith was designed to do. Faith was not designed to get you by. Faith was designed to remove the impossible things in your life. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say, now, don't worry, I'm with you. Because so much of the church world, they just want God to be with them. Well, folks, I don't want God just to be with me. And in fact, I'm not worried about God being with me. The Bible says God will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm not concerned about that. What I am concerned about is the impossible stuff that I face. 
I don't want God just to be with me. Now, I hope you don't take that wrong because I know he is with me and I care about his presence and his, his uh, being with me more than anything else. But I'm not satisfied with just that. And the reason I'm not is because Jesus said there was this thing called faith that was designed to move mountains. So I don't want God to just get me by. I don't just want my needs met. I want to fulfill God's plan for my life. That means I don't go from paycheck to paycheck. That doesn't mean that means I don't go from sickness and healing to sickness and healing to sickness and healing. That means I come to the place where sickness is removed from my life. Now, for me, that's impossible. I can't get rid of sickness on my own. Can you? I can treat symptoms. I can take aspirin for a headache. But I don't know if you know this or not, folks. uh, Headaches are not caused by an aspirin deficiency in the body. So there's a difference between treating symptoms and going to the root cause. Brother Hagin used to quote, um, uh, oh, the fellow from the uh, medical clinic in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, Anybody know what the name of that is? Mayo, yeah. Quoted, well, I guess uh, the Mayo Clinic was, uh, was named and founded for a couple of different uh, uh, brothers who were uh, of the Mayo family. And uh, one of them, they were, I think there were two of them. Both of them were very well known and renowned. But one of them said this. He made this statement. He said, there is an unseen source of sickness that goes deeper than any surgeon's knife can reach. Now, whether he knew this or not, I don't know his spiritual condition or, or, or what he knew about the things of God or anything else. But what he's tapping into is he's saying sickness has an unseen source. Sickness is not just caused by a germ. There's something that goes even further and deeper and more unseen than a germ. Well, that's the cause. That unseen germ, that unseen origin of sickness is spiritual death. So if I'm going to fulfill God's plan in my life, if I'm going to fulfill what God has for me in my life, I'm going to have to come to the place where I realize that Jesus has dealt with once and for all the root cause of sickness. That's what it means where it says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. It doesn't mean Jesus suffered the pain that you experienced because you have been diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't mean that Jesus has, has suffered the, the pain or the the. the um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the consequences, the, the, uh, um, the evidence of leukemia or something, some other kind of disease. It means Jesus dealt with the root cause. Jesus did not have cancer when he was on the cross, but he's dealing with the root cause of cancer. He didn't have leukemia or leprosy when he was on the cross, but he dealt with the root cause of both of them. Because Jesus is dealing with spiritual death, and spiritual death is the origin of all sickness. Well, that's not going from headache to healing to headache to healing to headache to healing. That's dealing with the root cause once and for all. Now, you can alleviate the symptoms. That's the word I was looking for, symptoms. You can alleviate the symptoms of certain diseases with medication. And thank God for that. But that still doesn't deal with the root cause. So, in other words, we might say it this way. Dealing with the symptoms or treating the symptoms is in the possible realm, not the impossible realm. But dealing with the root cause of sickness... No doctor knows how to do that. You go to a doctor's office, he'll ask you how you're doing. 
He won't tell you how you're doing. He'll ask you how you're doing. Because he wants you to tell him what symptoms are you experiencing so he knows what to look for. And then once he finds out what the cause is or or what the, uh, the situation is that's causing the symptoms, he'll try to treat those symptoms. But he doesn't know how to get to the root cause. Even if they go into surgery, they have to do tests and biopsies and stuff like that to see if they got it all. Well, if they got it all, how can it recur? You know as well as I do that a lot of times people come out of surgery and after five, three years, five years, whatever, I guess five years is the, is the line the do- doctors draw and say, well, okay, if you hadn't come back in five years, then we got it all. Well, what would cause it back in the second year? If they got it all and if the biopsy showed that there's healthy tissue around everything that they took off, then what would cause it to come back? The original cause and only the original cause. And I'm not talking about whatever condition was in the body. I'm not talking about whatever germs or, or something that they thought they got but they didn't get. I'm talking about the original cause, meaning spiritual death. That's the impossible part for man. Let me show you another couple of scriptures that pertain to this. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Just turn back a couple of chapters to Mark chapter 9. Jesus comes back from the mountain of transfiguration. Wouldn't you like to have been in on that experience? Verse 14, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude around, him, around about them and the scribes questioning with them. That's always trouble. And straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. I don't know if there was residual transfiguration upon him or I don't know what it, or if, it, if that's even the right way to say it. It seems to indicate that they looked at him and they said, Wow. So I don't know if there was something left over, residue from the experience on the mountain or not. But they came running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question are you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. In other words, he's saying, it's not the scribes, it's me. I'm the one that's, that's started this. It's, it's me and my problem that's created this multitude. I brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he takes him, he tears him. And he foams and gnashes away with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to the disciples that they should cast him out and they could not. Now remember Jesus has already given his disciples authority over sickness and disease. So there's got to be a reason why they couldn't. Right? I mean God doesn't give something and it not work. There's got to be a reason. And he answered him. Notice he answered him meaning the father not the disciples. And said O faithless generation how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. In other words he's saying he's calling the man a part of. Or saying that the man is a part of a faithless. That means no faith generation. So what is Jesus identifying as the problem? The father didn't have faith. Not everybody that comes to healing has faith to receive. Now we know, let me take a little side journey here for the sake of those who are not aware of these scriptures. Mark chapter 6 tells about Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 is the same account. Luke gives us a little bit more information about what he preached there. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor, to heal the brokenhearted and so forth. He sit, he, uh, after he finishes reading from the book of Isaiah, these scriptures that have to do with the Messiah... And the power of God that will be on the Messiah to reveal God unto them. He closes the book and he hands it again to the, the, the minister, meaning the head of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue. And then he says to them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. 
In other words, what Jesus is saying is these scriptures that I just read about the Messiah and the power of God that's upon him and the work that he's given it, that God has given the Messiah to do, that's talking about me. We know that because they marveled and they said, wait a minute, who does this guy think he is? We know his mother and his father, Mary and Joseph. We know his brothers and sisters. They're here. What they're saying is we know that the Messiah doesn't have a mother and father. We know that the Messiah wouldn't have brothers and sisters because how could somebody be the son of God and have brothers and sisters? So they're judging based on what they think about him. They don't know that he was born of a virgin. They don't know that his brothers and sisters are not his full brothers and sisters. They're his half brothers and sisters. In other words, God is his father through Mary, but his brothers and sisters are the sons of Joseph and Mary. So what they think they know is keeping them from receiving what God said and what is true. I wonder how often that happens. What people think they know keep them out of the truth of God's word. But they wouldn't be convinced. And so, picking up the story, they wanted to throw Jesus off the brow of the cliff. They ran him out of town and tried to throw him off the brow of the cliff and he walked through the midst of them. He, he, didn't, he wasn't harmed by them. He just turned around and walked through the midst of them. Mark tells kind of the synopsis of what happened without going into some of the detail. Mark chapter 6 and verse 5 says, And he could there do no mighty work. Now here it says that the man brought the, his son to the disciples to cast out the devil, cast the devil out of him, and they couldn't do it. Yet Jesus has already delivered unto them authority over all sickness and disease and to cast out devils. So there had to be something that was stopping them from being able to do what God gave them authority to do. What was it? Well, in in Mark chapter 6 verse 5 again it says, And he could there do no mighty work. In his own hometown of Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. He was unable. Now I thought Jesus had the power of God without measure. I thought Jesus had the spirit of God without measure and therefore he had unlimited power to do whatever God wanted him to do. Didn't God want people in this town healed? Well, if if he didn't, then why did Jesus waste his time saying the spirit of the Lord is upon me to to preach the, the gospel of the poor to heal the brokenhearted? Why is he saying I'm anointed to preach and to heal when there's no if God didn't want people there to hear the gospel or to be healed? That sounds like he would be working counter to God's plan and purpose. Because maybe somebody would have believed and taken him up on it. No, it says, and he could there do no mighty work. Mark 6, 5. He could in his own hometown of Nazareth do no mighty work. Save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks. A few folks with minor ailments. Vine's expository dictionary says. A few folks with minor ailments and got them healed. Now, why couldn't he do anything? Why couldn't he get any blind eyes open? Why couldn't he get any crippled people healed? Why couldn't he get any deaf people's ears opened? Or the lame to walk? Whatever the case may be. Why couldn't he get any healing miracles done there? Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Well, you've got two cases, Mark chapter 6, talking about Jesus, and Mark chapter 9, talking about the disciples who had the authority to cast out devils and heal the sick. You've got two examples where the power of God was hindered. The power of God couldn't work, and in both cases, it refers to the unbelief of the individuals. Can you see a pattern here? Well, I wonder if that pattern still holds true today. Well, of course it does. Where in the world did people get the idea that if somebody just had enough power, then they could heal whoever God wanted them to heal? Wouldn't that fit Jesus' description? Yet he couldn't. Well, what's going to make us think we're going to get better results than Jesus? 
Anybody willing to step out on that board? Of course not. Well, then we have to understand that healing works under the same terms and conditions as it did under Jesus' day. It still takes faith on the part of the individual, even though Jesus, as an example, had unlimited power to heal. So Jesus answers the man, the father, and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Or how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him, the son, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, The father answered, Since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believe. Let me read this to you from a couple other translations. Because this is, uh, this is a really, really poor translation. It, gives us, it does a great disservice, I believe, to, uh, to what's being said here. Mark chapter 9, verse 23. The American Standard Version said, And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst, exclamation mark, all things are possible to him that believeth. The BBE translation says, and Jesus said to him, if you are able, exclamation mark, all things are possible to him who has faith. The contemporary English version said, Jesus replies, why do you say if you can? Anything is possible for someone who has faith. Darby's translation says, and Jesus said to him, the if thou couldst is if thou couldst believe. All things are possible to him that believes. The ERV says, very similar to uh, one of the previous ones, Jesus said to the Father, why do you say if you can? All things are possible to the one who believes. The ESV translation says, Jesus said to him, if you can, exclamation part, point, all things are possible for one who believes. The ISV, Jesus told him, if you are able, question mark, everything is possible for the person who believes. I could go on and on and on. It shows it translation after translation. What does not show, because there is no um, punctuation in the original Greek language, is that Jesus is making a sarcastic, what we would consider to be a sarcastic statement. When he says, if thou canst, he's not saying, he's responding to what, Jesus, what the, the father asked. The father said, if you are able, if you can do anything, do it. And Jesus said, if I can, it's not about what I can do. It's about what you can believe. In other words, healing, deliverance for his son, is not based on the ability that Jesus has or the secret to his power. Healing is based on the willingness of the individual to believe. Now back to Mark chapter 11. I don't mean turn back there, but let me remind you of Mark chapter 11 verse 23 again. Jesus explaining faith, which is necessary to receive from God, said, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice Jesus did not say, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And if he has enough power, he'll have what he says. You see where we've missed it? We've tried to focus on the power part. It's not about the power part. It's about the faith part. The power is a given. 
The power is activated by faith. All it takes. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if I can, why do you ask me if I can? This is not a matter of what I can do. All things are possible to him that believes. The only if you can in this is if you can believe. Now, why is he saying this? Because the father doesn't believe. He's already identified that the father is faithless or without faith, right? So he's already identified that the father is without faith. Why is the father without faith? May I make a suggestion? For your consideration, I believe the father was without faith because it looked impossible. He's seen it year after year after year, all of this kid's life. All of this kid's life. I believe that's the reason why when the the boy saw Jesus, the boy was being brought to Jesus, the evil spirit in that boy threw him down and tore him and caused there to be a fit. I I don't know what it would be like, but I imagine it would be something that was used, used to be referred to as an epileptic fit. Something where the boy sees Jesus and the evil spirit just... You know, has his, it pushes his button and, and some kind of fit takes place. Why? Because that makes people think that it's impossible. That makes people think this is too big for anything to be done about it. I would submit to you that that's the very reason that the disciples couldn't do anything about it because they couldn't recognize the father's unbelief because they saw the same thing and it freaked them out too. I'll prove that to you in just a minute. And that's exactly what the devil does. The devil throws his little fits in your life to make you think things are too big to move. That's what Wigglesworth was saying, I believe. You judge it for yourself. But that's what I believe Wigglesworth was saying. Until I understood that God wanted me to move mountains, I was never able to be used of him to do great things. The end of the result of the, the end of this story is that Jesus cast the devil out of this little boy. The father finally gets over into un- uh, from unbelief. In the one word that Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes. The father responds and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like a lot of faith, but it was apparently enough to get him out of the unbelief position he was in so he could receive from God, and Jesus delivers his boy whole. Now, let me show you Luke's account of this. Or, no, I'm sorry, not Luke. It's uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 17. Here's the same story. Matthew emphasizes a different part of this. Matthew was one of the group where Mark wasn't. Matthew emphasizes a different part of this. He emphasizes the disciples' position, not the father's. Let's start reading in verse, um, well, where does it start? Let's just start reading under in verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, this is after the mountain of transfiguration experience. You see, it's the same time. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falls into the fire and oft times into the water. Well, this is the same story. The same information is being related just without all the detail that we got from Mark. Right. And I brought him to your disciples Verse 16, and they could not cure him. Same information, less detail. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Bring him hither to me. Now, from the way that Matthew relates his story, you can't tell if he's talking about faithless being the disciples or the father. 
Because in Mark it says, and Jesus answered him, the Father. Here it just says Jesus answered and said, he's answering the Father, but it doesn't identify that he's speaking about the Father. So it says, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could we not cast him out? Now, Mark's account, we didn't read it, but Mark's account goes that far. The disciples came and asked and said, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus answered and said, this kind goeth forth not out, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. So it emphasizes or or intimates that it's the problem of the disciples that they didn't pray and fast enough. Well, I've got a problem with that if that's all there was to it because Jesus didn't pray and fast when the Father came to him. So he's got to be talking about something else. Praying doesn't give you additional power over the devil. Fasting doesn't change the devil or change God or, or anything but you. Well, what does prayer and fasting do? Prayer and fasting makes you more spiritually sensitive. Jesus didn't need to pray and fast when the Father came to him because he's already prayed and fasted up. He's sensitive enough, spiritually sensitive enough to realize what the problem was. They didn't. So Jesus is telling them, if you'll give yourself over to prayer and fasting, commit yourself to spiritual things instead of natural things in a greater measure, then you'll have a greater spiritual sense so you'll be able to recognize these things. You'll be able to recognize... (laughs) Thank you, Lord. I just got an answer I've been looking for for months. Ah... (laughs) <laughs> he's saying to them, telling them if they'll make the commitment that they need to make, then they'll gain the spiritual sensitivity to recognize when faith is present or not. Can you see that? But Matthew's going to give us more detail about what Jesus answers the disciples. Even though Mark gave us more details about Jesus' interaction with the Father, Matthew gives us more detail about interaction with the disciples because he's one of them. So here's what Jesus answers. They said, why couldn't we do this? Verse 20, Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. Now, folks, let me present something else for you to consider. If the disciples are not used to casting the devil out of people, if the disciples are not used to healing the sick, why would they ask, why couldn't we do this? Their question, why couldn't we do this, intimates, suggests that they're used to doing this and now they're stymied because this time it didn't work. Because if that's not the case, if it never works, why would they say, why couldn't we do this? We'd say, you know, Jesus, we just can't make this work. We keep trying and nothing happens. Are you sure you gave us the right thing? They're used to it working. This time it didn't. Jesus is responding and says, now to them he's saying, it's not the father's unbelief, but it was your unbelief too. We know it was the father's unbelief because of what Matthew tells us about it. But now we see that the disciples were in unbelief too. Why were they in unbelief? I believe with all my heart because they saw the devil tear this kid too. They saw something about how the devil had a hold of this kid that made them think this is too big. Notice what Jesus said. The answer is because of your unbelief for. Verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. What is that saying? Here's another example, another uh, uh, incident where it shows us God wants you to move impossible things. What he's telling the disciples is very simply this. You could have done it. 
no matter what you thought about it. You may have thought that it was too big for you. You may have thought the devil has too big a hold. You may have tried to see if it was going to work and that doesn't work. But you could have done it. Because he answers and says because of your unbelief. For if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed you shall say. Shall is the word will. He's very simply saying this. If you have faith you'll say. What didn't they do? They weren't saying the right thing. They weren't exercising their faith with any kind of heart. uh, They weren't exercising the instructions Jesus gave them with any kind of heart faith behind it. He said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed. Folks, the Bible very seldom talks about faith in terms of size. I know a lot of people do. They talk about great faith and they're thinking about a lot of faith. They talk about little faith. The Bible speaks of little faith. But most people, when they talk about it, they, they, the, the question or the problem that the devil tries to pose for them is, do you have enough faith? Or he'll tell you, you don't have enough faith for this. What does that mean? You don't have enough faith. Your faith tank is only half full? Well, what does that mean? Any of you ever had the devil tell you that? You don't have enough faith for this. Well, I have. What is that supposed to mean? Nowhere does the Bible say, if you have enough faith, you'll say into the mountain. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says, here's how faith works. Faith speaks and doesn't doubt in his heart and, in, and believes what it says has come to pass. And you have what you say. Where's the amount in that? Now, now don't get me wrong. The devil knows how it works. He's counting on you not knowing. He knows it's not a matter of how much faith you have. He knows it's simply a matter of God has instructed us. He's hoping you're not aware of the fact that it's simply a matter of using the faith you have. How much faith did the father have over in Mark chapter 9 when he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's not the centurion's faith over in Matthew chapter 8. The centurion says, you don't have to come to my house. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Folks, that's great faith. Jesus said so. I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. That doesn't sound like the father in Mark chapter 9 to me. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What's he doing? He's saying according to the faith that he has. And that's enough. That's enough mixed with Jesus who is showing us. I'm not talking about the physical presence of Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus who was sent to destroy the works of the devil. That's already been accomplished for you, whether you see anybody in the natural realm or not. That power of God that breaks and has broken for us has broken the power of sin and death. Over all of mankind. Mixed with the smallest amount of faith. And that's what Jesus says here. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed. That's the smallest seed there is. He's saying the smallest speck of faith. That speaks to the mountain. And doesn't doubt in his heart. But believes that what he'll say. What he says will come to pass. Will have what he says. And Jesus goes even further. And he says. And nothing shall be impossible to you. Can I ask you a question? Well, I'm going to anyway. You might as well say yes. What's impossible to you? Now, don't get religious on me and say, oh, Pastor Mike, nothing's impossible to me. And then leave here thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about my problem. I mean, I mean real, in a real sense. What's impossible to you? Everybody's got their possibility limit. What's possible for you? Everybody has a possibility limit unless they take the word of God to move that limit into the impossible. Are you out there? That's what I believe Wigglesworth was trying to tell Brother Stormont. 
until I learned that God wanted me to move mountains. I was never able to be used by God in any significant way. This is a man that raised 20 some odd people from the dead in his ministry. Physical death apparently was a mountain that he recognized God was willing to move or wanted him to move. He took the most impossible cases in town. When he'd go to a new town, he'd take the most impossible cases in town. Many times there'd be people that'd be sitting back. They would have heard of his reputation and they'd be sitting back waiting on him. And they'd say, well, you might heal the sick in the, in the meetings, but you'll never heal so-and-so. So he'd go to so-and-so's house. And without fail, I mean, people who were famous for being sick, people who were famous for being demon-possessed, stuff like that. He'd go to their house. He'd, he'd be led of the Lord to do it. He wouldn't just go out of pride or something like that. But he'd wait till the Lord directs him to go. And he'd go and get them set free. And man, it would turn everybody upside down because it showed everybody that nothing was impossible to him that believes. And that's the point Jesus is trying to get across to us. Nothing's impossible for you. Don't use your faith to get by. Use your faith on the impossible. Use your faith on the impossible. God wants you to move mountains. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to move mountains. You designed our faith to do the impossible. Father, we realize how important it is to walk in fellowship with you, to walk in your word to live according to your word, to have a pure heart before you. But, oh, Father, never let us think that it's up to us and our own good works in walking with you that makes the power of God available. You know our weaknesses, Father. We know what you expect of us. You know that sometimes we fall short, and that doesn't change the relationship that we have with you. Faith is ours because of our relationship with you through Jesus. The miraculous is ours because of our relationship with you through Christ Jesus. Nothing is impossible for us, Lord. We see that. We see that with our minds. Help us to see it with our hearts. Help us to come to the same realization. So it makes us an army of people that had the faith and the boldness of Willsworth. Cause us to see just like he did, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. And I guess you're dismissed.